Well, good morning. I hope you feel on top of the world. A little steel drums going in there. I feel like we're on a vacation someplace together and just celebrating. And, and this series, Unshakable, has been about those wild dreams of climbing mountains and getting to the very best that, that life might have for us. So thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks to those of you watching online as we finish our final chapter in the story of a man named Joseph who's been climbing this incredible mountain, and we're going to find him at the top of the world today. He had a vision years ago, 10 years ago, that God would one day use him to transform the world. And it was laughable at the time. But we now find him on the top of the world, literally right-hand man to the pharaoh of the Egyptian empire. But even though he's in a position of being on top of the world, he's got to wrestle with something. How do you forgive the people? who traumatized you and stole a decade of your life. And he may positionally be at the top of the, of the world, but even more so psychologically and emotionally and spiritually, because we're going to figure out how he forgave those brothers who put him through hell for 10 years. And he fought and he fought and he fought, not for his career, he fought and fought to stay free inside. So don't you listen to this next song. It's a powerful song giving voice to fighting your way to freedom and forgiveness when somebody has wronged you and someone has hurt you. But saying, I want to arrive at the mountaintop experience. And I want to become the kind of person who's free inside as well. Let's listen. Well, wouldn't you love to be able to say that? Look at all the bad things that have happened to you or about you or folks who maybe haven't had the best motives and be able to say in your heart and really be true, thank you, you made me smarter, you made me, my skin a little thicker, and I became the best version of me despite what you did to me and why. Like, yeah, I love that, but how do you get there? Like, I love singing the song, I love hearing the, the energy of that song, I'm just not sure how to get there. Well, I had uh, several conversations in the last couple weeks with folks who are in that journey trying to fight their way to find freedom. I was talking to one couple who said, you know, our adult child did something very, very horrifically painful to us. And I began to kind of tell that story and my heart just kind of, oh, bled for them. She said, I keep trying to forgive, but the injustice of it all, it's wrong. Does the Bible make me have to think it wasn't that bad? I'm like, no, the Bible does not tell you you need to think it's not that bad. She says, well, how do I get free from this? I said, one of the first steps to getting free from bitterness and unforgiveness is relinquishing the role of being judge. Because as long as you think you need to judge them and you need to keep track and you need to make sure they don't get away with it, you're setting yourself up as, as judge and God and it's going to wear you out. And she's like, it is. I said, relinquishing your position as judge and saying, I'm going to trust the situation, trust this person to be, be held accountable by the God who rules the universe is actually the first step toward freedom. She's like, well, I can do that with lots of people, just not this person. I said, Yeah. Yeah, but it's still the same step. you got to relinquish the role of being judge. Do you have anybody that, like that in your life? That in general, you know, you can forgive a lot of people. Hey, people make mistakes. People do bad stuff. 
but oh, when you think of this person. Maybe this morning you're feeling good till a second ago, and now your blood's starting to boil a little bit as you're thinking about that person. I've got a couple. For the sake of today, I'm going to call him your Judah. Because forgiving your Judah, it's going to require unconditional forgiveness. And you're like, mm-mm. But also semi-conditional trust. And understanding how these two things go together is going to begin to, I think, set a roadmap for you to begin to make progress on how you can be free with unconditional forgiveness so you don't have to keep rolling that scenario around in your head again. It doesn't mean you have to be their best friend. It doesn't mean you have to ever trust them again. It doesn't mean you can't put series of tests in place to test and see if they're reliable before you ever do rebuild a relationship, if it's even appropriate. Now, why do I call it your Judah? Well, because that's exactly what the name of the actual guy was who threw Joseph into that pit. I told you it was his 11 brothers, and it was, but it really was a specific brother. He tells him this vision that God gave him a dream that one day he was going to accomplish big things and they were going to bow down to him, and that didn't go over well. He was a younger brother. And so they threw him down in the pit, and he reached up for their help, and they gave them none of it. In fact, he cried out, and they just ate a snack while he, at the depths of a well, cried out for his life, and they ignored him. And then his brother Judah, Joseph's brother Judah, said these words. We could kill him, but what profit would that be to us? Here's how he says it. Next slide. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So he's open to that scenario. But even better, let's sell him and make some money off this deal. Whew. Now that's a Judah that's hard to forgive. Didn't listen to him when he screamed in the, in the well. Didn't scream to him while he was taken off by the, the Egyptian raiders that put him into slavery. And now he hasn't seen his brother for 10 years. Who's your Judah? Is it your ex? And you can retell stories that make us all go, oh, oh, oh. Is it a business partner? Is it a child that you poured your life into and there's just a sense of entitlement and just stab you in the back and unthankfulness? We've all got a Judah who took something from us. And it might have been a pastor and it might have been a priest and it might have been an uncle or it might have been just somebody who screwed you over in a business deal. But we've all got a Judah. And what was worse, it wasn't like, hey, they tried hard, they saw their mistake. And it's like they did it on purpose. It's like they purposely stuck the knife in and twisted it, Right? That's what Judah was like for Joseph. In fact, I was down in Naples this last year, and we were doing a tour of the, uh, the water. As we are doing a tour of the water, kind of seeing the houses and who lived in these big fancy homes right along the ocean, we came across the uh, home of a gigantic uh, houseboat. And he had built this garage for this houseboat right there in the little lagoon that they were in, looking out to the ocean. Apparently, according to the, the tourist guide, it was owned by uh, an executive of haagen well, apparently he goes to build this massive boathouse, and his neighbor wasn't real thrilled, as you can guess, because his neighbor, who lives on the other side, no longer had a view of the ocean. So he tried to talk to him, tried to convince him not to do that, tried to say, hey, you know, is there any way we could do something else? Finally gets built anyway, they go through litigation, blah, 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 this goes on for years, and finally the guy who owns this piece of property, notice the greenery there, right? That's where the house used to be. 
he tore his house down, still owns the property, still left the boathouse up, and left it there for the rest of eternity to sit there to block, next slide, the neighbor's view. So there's the neighbor, never able to see the ocean because somebody just stuck the knife in a twist. You've got a Judah like that, don't you? So two principles. Two principles I think can begin the process of moving toward freedom. Principle number one. We can't change what happened to us. But we can change because of what happened to us. Many times we've gone back in our mind and said, oh my goodness, if only I could have changed it, if only I could have done that, if only I could have outsmarted, run away, get out of the well. You can't change the past. You can't change what happened to you. Joseph had no, no control over what happened in the well that day in the pit, had no control over the time that you know, he got falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and got thrown into prison. But you can change because of what happened to you. I'm going to become a better version of myself despite what happened. I'm not going to be defined by my past. And that's exactly what we see over these last 10 years. Both Judah and Joseph have changed. And he has every right to be angry, every right to be traumatized. He's got PTSD, being shoved, being rejected, being pushed off, being falsely accused, being sitting in prison. He's got every reason to get better. And yet Joseph changes because of what happened to him. And, and he becomes, number one, someone who's incredibly resourced. By the time you get to the end, you see him resourced by God. So much so that when Pharaoh has a dream and asks him to interpret the dream, He's able to tell him what that's about and still give credit to God, still depend on God, still have joy in his life. He has a family. He has a marriage. And the Pharaoh is so struck by this guy. He's like, oh, my goodness. I've never seen somebody in whom the spirit of God lives. You've got access to resources the people I'm used to hanging around with don't. You've got a supernatural wisdom, a supernatural forgiveness, a supernatural ability to persevere. This guy is resourced. He's also become someone who's wiser. He learned some things at Potiphar's about how to manage, about the Egyptian culture, about how to operate in this new world. He learned some things about the prisoners in prison, about how the government works and, and how to work around the system by the time he gets to prison. He became very wise. So much so that the Pharaoh is so struck by his wisdom, he says, I need you to run this project to save the world. Seven years of famine are coming, but seven years of bounty beforehand, and you're the one to manage the project. I see something and you become someone I want to be put in charge. Third, he becomes someone who's ready for the dream. So back when he was 18, he has this dream, but he's not the person he needs to be yet for the dream. God gave him a dream, gave him a, a piece of where he's headed, but he's not ready for it yet. It was these ups and downs through these circumstances that he began to change and become the person who God could use, and he was now ready for the dream. And now the Pharaoh says, hey, here's my signet ring. You're in charge. You answer only to me. The whole Egyptian empire is under your command. And Pharaoh took his signet ring off and put it on Joseph's hand. I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Wow. Now that's Joseph. He's just changed because of what happened to him for the good. Now Judah, not so much. Let's back up because in the middle of, G of G Joseph's story is a a little stop points that tell us what's going on with Judah. So Judah, after this moment where he basically sold off his brother and made some money off him, 
Next thing we find him is an older man. He's the patriarch of his own family. And he's become a scoundrel. He's become self-centered and indulgent. While Joseph is resisting temptation of his boss's wife trying to sleep with him, Judah is quite the opposite. We find him regularly visiting prostitutes. The problem is that the Bible says that the Messiah is going to come through Judah. That guy? Yeah. One of his descendants? Yeah. Well, he has a daughter-in-law named Tamar. And Tamar marries one of his sons. But the son dies. So as part of the Jewish tradition, she was to go to the patriarch of the family during a time of arranged marriages, and he was, according to the Jewish law, to have one of the other unmarried brothers marry her, which is kind of weird for us, but that's kind of how it went back then. Well, he has not fulfilled his duty. He's a good moral Hebrew Torah-following man who's not following Torah. Well, she knows a little bit about him, and he's about to head into town. And she's waited for years for him to do the right thing. So she marches her way into the town he's headed toward, dresses up like a prostitute, and sits at the, at the corner. He sees her at the corner, and he propositions her, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. It's Jerry Springer time in the Bible. Who says the Bible's boring? So he shows up, propositions her. They're kind of negotiating a price. They agree on like a goat, I think was the price for the night. But he didn't have the goat with him. He left it at home. So she says, tell you what, you give me your signet ring, give me something that belongs to you, and then you know, tomorrow morning you send it back and we'll trade it off. So she's got a signet ring. So they finish their, their night's activities. He heads home. He sends somebody else back with the payment of the goat. They can't find the prostitute. Turns out there's never been a prostitute on that road. They come back, we've never seen a prostitute on that road. He's like, well, I think I was with somebody. Well, man, I lost my signet ring. Totally unrelated, eight months later, they find out that Tamar is pregnant. And they bring her before the spiritual patriarch of the family, Judah, who decides to talk about how this kind of behavior is unacceptable in his tribe. Here's where we pick up the story. He's become a selfish, self-indulgent, self-righteous man. Three months after, Judah was told, Tomorrow your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Therefore she is with child by harlotry. Judah said, Well, bring her out and let her be burned. Burn the witch! Burn the witch! We won't have people like that in our community. Which, by the way, I did a whole message on this about four months ago. If you want to go look at it, it's called uh, it's The Scarlet Letter. And it's literally the scarlet letter uh, told through this lens. So if you're interested, go to our app or our website. Burner! Man, I can't believe we have people like this in our family. So she's brought out and sent to her father-in-law. And she says, before you burn me, could I have a little chat? I know you'd want to know who the father is so he could be held accountable. Here's his signet ring, and here's the possessions of the man who fathered my child. By the man to whom these belong, I am with child, she said. Please determine whose they are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And here is a turning point for Judah, actually. He actually begins to change. For the first time in his life, he acknowledged, he admitted, and he accepted responsibility. In fact, it's, it's shocking, really. His speech, he says, she has been more righteous than me, for she waited for years for me to do the right thing, and I didn't. And she was impoverished, and she didn't have a plan for her life because I didn't do the right thing. And he never knew her again. 
Now, Joseph doesn't know anything about this. But God has used the circumstances of his self-righteousness to finally begin to change. And that's where we pick back up on our story. Both people have changed because of their circumstances. Judah took a little bit longer, took a little bit more pain. See that Joseph, despite what's happened, despite having community, he has begun to change. Principle number two. You can forgive in your heart while still testing with your eyes. And I think this is so helpful that I was at a small group recently. And by the way, as you come to our church, if you say, hey, I really want to get to know people. A small group is a great way just to build some friendships. And sometimes to ask questions and get Bible study. But sometimes just to get to know people that live in your community, that go to our church, spread out over three services. So I was at this uh, small group. And while I was there, I had a psychologist was there and said, what does the Bible have to say about forgiving and how to forgive somebody? I said, well, I think one of the most helpful things the Bible can help you do in forgiving is divide forgiveness into three parts. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Often we glue them together and we think to forgive somebody means I have to trust them. Mm -mm. To forgive them means I need to reconcile with them. Mm -mm. And often if you can divide these out, it helps people say forgiveness takes one, reconciliation takes two, and restoration of trust takes time. In fact, I mentioned to her that day, we did a whole series on this about four years ago. If you go to our website, www.horizoncc.com, or use our app, you can actually download it. It's called Battle Stations. And here's the point. You can forgive if somebody else isn't repentant at all. Because you want to be free. You don't want to be in bitterness. You don't want them to keep hurting you for another decade, right? Forgiveness takes one. And doesn't mean that what they did wasn't horrible. Doesn't mean that they're off the hook. It just means you want to be free. Now, reconciliation is different. That takes two. You might want to reconcile with somebody, but they don't want to reconcile with you. Or somebody else might want to reconcile with you, but you're like, mm-mm, I'm not going to be hurt again. To forgive does not mean to reconcile. And sometimes when you want to reconcile, it's not possible. But that's different from restoration of trust. It might take weeks, months, or even years until somebody builds a case to be trustworthy. So sharing it that day in the small group, lots of questions on bitterness and forgiving and specific examples. And he said that was so helpful to realize that these three things don't have to be glued together. And the way I'm going to say it today is that you can forgive in your heart because you want to be free from what Judah did. You don't want Judah to keep hurting you 10 years, 20 years later. That doesn't mean you have to be their friend. But if you are open to reconciliation, you can test with your eyes, have they really changed? And that's exactly what Joseph does in the most amazing way, as you're going to see today. He puts these brothers through a series of tests that are just everything they deserve and more. So here's what's happened. Seven years of, of feast are over. Joseph has saved 20% each year, and now there's grain to, to, to endure this famine. And now the famine has hit Egypt. It spread all the way back to his hometown where his brothers and dad are starving. They've heard there's food in Egypt, and so here are these brothers, 10 of them, there's 11th left at home, named Benjamin, they make their way to Egypt because they're starving. They come before the great commander of the Egyptian forces, Joseph, but they don't know it's him. He looks like an Egyptian, he talks like an Egyptian, probably dances like an Egyptian, the whole bit. He's standing on his throne, and they bow down before fulfillment of the dream. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. What do you need? We need food. We're poor people from far off. We just come for food. Huh. 
he's going to put them through a series of tests to see if they've changed before he reconciles with them. Three tests. The first is the self-awareness test. Are they aware of what they've done? Are they aware of who they've hurt? Are they worried how painful they put me through this? So he talks to them. Who are you? I think you're spies. You've come to, to, to spy out the nakedness of the land. To which they say, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. If Joseph was drinking at that point, it would have been like this, you know. You're all spies. No, we're honest men. I mean, like the spit take of all spit takes. Honest men. Your servants are not spies. He must have, there is no self-awareness here. He said, no. Well, tell you what, you say you uh, all belong to one man? You say, and they mentioned a little bit later, they have another son at home? All right, self-awareness test. Well, let's see. You go get that other son. You bring him back here and prove that you're telling the truth. And by the way, I'm going to take one of your sons that are here. I'm going to throw him in my prison. Let's see if you return to help out a brother left in prison. Now, they immediately get the connection. They don't know it's Joseph, but they get the connection that life has come back around. Here's what they say. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to the prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine for your houses. I'll take care of you. I don't want you to die. Bring your youngest brother you mentioned to me. And by the way, there was like three wives Jacob had. This was his brother from his mom. So this is his real brother that he's never seen. And he's just longing. Maybe saw when he was real young, but longing to see Benjamin. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, oh my goodness, speaking in Hebrew, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, Joseph. For we saw the anguish of his soul back 10 years ago when he pleaded with us in that well and we would not hear him. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Ah, they don't know he can understand their Hebrew. He's like, oh, they get it. There might be some self-awareness here. We'll see. We'll see if they come back for their brother left for dead. And we'll see if they bring that other brother back. So test number one, the self-awareness test. The second test is the selfish test. Are they still as selfish as they ever were? I'm not going to reconcile with them until they can pass the test with my eyes. Are they ready to be reconciled with? Are they repentant? So the selfishness test. So he returned to them again. He talked with them. He took Simeon, one of their brothers, took him, put him in prison. Right before their eyes. All right, here's your brother in prison. Let's see if you return for a lost brother. So they head home. They have enough food for a while. They start running out of food, and Dad says, hey, you need to go back. And remember, they've lied to Dad and told Dad that Joseph was killed by an animal. And they've never told him the truth. Dad has been grieving. Now, Dad had some favoritism issues. He favored one particular wife, and he favored the kids of those particular wives, which was Joseph and Benjamin. He is not going to let Benjamin go. But they're like, if you don't let Benjamin go, we're going to die. And now Judah steps back into the picture again. Has Judah changed? Looks like he has. Look at the speech he gives to his dad. Here's what he says. Judah said to Israel, that's Jacob's name's also Israel, send the lad, Benjamin, with me, and we will rise and go, and we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So bring the whole family with I myself will be surety for him. I will put my life on the line for him. I will make sure he's protected. Everything I own is at stake here. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Wow. 
maybe Judah hasn't changed. He's willing to put himself on the line to protect a younger brother. Hmm, that's different. So first two tests, a self-awareness test and a selfish test. And so far, they come back. They came back for the brother. Joseph's like, all right, maybe my brother's, he's already, for, as you're going to see, he's already forgiven them in his heart. But he's going to test and see whether or not he should reconcile with them and trust them. So they come back. He's like, all right, came back for your brother. Well done. Doesn't reveal himself. Got one more test. The sacrifice test. Are you willing to sacrifice your comfort for other people? He says, here's more food. Take it home. Good to see you. Great to have you in the kingdom. See you later. They go home. Giant bags of grain. On their way, he sends his raiders. Dun, 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 dun. Hey, one of you stole the king's cup. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. Yeah, you did. So tell you what, we're going to search your bags. And whoever's bag has the cup in it is going back to our prison. And there's a speech. Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be the slave. As for you, go in peace to your father. Sure, we didn't do anything. That's fine. But Joseph had put his cup in Benjamin's bag. So they opened the bags. And now dad's favorite son, the son not from their moms, is about to be thrown in prison. They grab Benjamin. Everybody goes back with him before Joseph. And the final test is now to be passed. Because Joseph looks at them and says, your younger brother Benjamin stole. He's going to my prison. And Judah steps out again. And look at this speech he gives. The man has finally changed. He's willing to sacrifice himself for someone else. For Judah said, what, what shall we say to my Lord? What could we speak? How could we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. We're being repaid for things we did years ago. I get the connection here, Judah says. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and, and he also whom the cup was found. And then he says, can I talk to you privately? He pulls him aside. Here's what he says to Joseph. And for the first time in his life, he's actually thinking about his dad. Remember, the same dad he lied to and told him that Joseph was dead. Here's what he says. When I come to your servant, my father, you remember I told you about my dad back home? If, if I go back home and I don't bring this lad with me, my dad's going to have a heart attack and die. I'm telling you, he will not make it. And since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen before he sees that the lad is not with us. He will die. So therefore, here's my deal. Let your servant remain Put me in prison for what he has done. Instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. And now Joseph says, all right, I've already forgiven him. He's passed these three tests. Now I might reconcile with him. That brings us to my challenge for each of us today and I'll show you how Joseph reacts. I want you to forgive because you want to be free. Because you want it. Because God has forgiven you. God gave you forgiveness. And because whoever it is in your life has wounded you, they need it. Forgive because you want it. God gave it. And they need it. Forgiving your Judah is going to require that. Unconditional love. He's already forgiven him. But conditional trust. Semi-conditional trust. Uh, we'll see how you pass the test. Let me walk through those three steps. Forgiving your Judah because you want to be free, because God gave it to you, and because they need it.
First, who won it? My son, uh, Javen's in his 20s, and he had this big job offer came up this year, and it was just a fantastic opportunity. Everything was working well. It was during COVID, so it's kind of crazy following this COVID stuff. Um, you know, how do you do job interviews with COVID? And so he was kind of bouncing some ideas off me, and, and when he got this job offer, and it just looked like perfect for his skill set and his desires and his passion as a video editor and producer. Long story short, he got a personal call from the CEO congratulating him, set it all up, new office, iPads, a whole bit. The whole thing was an elaborate scam. And I was so angry at people I didn't know for this elaborate, elaborate scam. Trying to help him protect bank accounts and all this stuff and fix and stop. And I just found myself rolling it over and over in my head. I knew that they weren't thinking about me three months later. But I was thinking about them. Just had one more thing I had to fix this week because of it. But I got to the place I said, I want it. I want to be free. I don't want to keep rolling this thing in my head. I want to be free. You know, that's exactly what Joseph did. Look at the speech Joseph gives. This is so powerful what he says. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now that he passed the test. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. That's Hebrew for they pooped their pants. You're Joseph. And look, this is one of the most powerful speeches in literature, but it really happened in history. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So I can cut off your head. No. So they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. He doesn't minimize what they did. Then he says, but do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. What? Because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. God used these things to make me a better person. God used these things to allow me to help other people and save the world. God, what you meant for evil, God used for good. God sent me before you to preserve a prosperity for you and the earth and to save your lives by greater deliverance. I couldn't have saved you and our family had God not put me here. <sighs> then he goes on when they think they're not going to forgive him, and he says, am I in the place of God? No. And he provides for them, and he cares for them. He'd forgiven them years ago, but now after they pass the test, he's willing to reconcile and restore trust in them. So forgive your Judah, because one, you want it. You want to stop telling that story and rehearsing it in your head. Number two, because God gave it. I was talking to a doctor recently. We are having lunch together, and he talked about a, a, a client he had who was a lawyer. And this client um, had some medical conditions he was checking up on, and he'd recommended a particular specialist. So this lawyer went to the specialist, and the specialist took a little bit longer than he thought he should to get a diagnosis. And so the lawyer sued my friend, the doctor, for giving the wrong recommendation. This whole legal battle and da-da-da-da goes on for a long time. Just all the hassle, all the frustration. Fast forward a couple years. My doctor friend gets a call from the lawyer. Says, hey, I got some, some tests going on right now, and you were the only one that could read these things. Would you be willing to help me? <laughs> and my friend said, sure. How can I help? I'm sitting over at lunch like, really? 
He said, as we began to talk, I did give him help. I did read the stuff. I was able to find it. He says, you know what, that recommendation you gave to me years ago, turns out you were right. And I found out about a year ago you were right, and I wasn't man enough to call and apologize. My friend, the doctor, said, as we were talking, he says, you know, God's forgiven me of a lot of stuff that I've done wrong. If God's forgiven me of all this, then I can forgive somebody else what they've done against me. It's an analogy Jesus gives. He goes, if you think somebody's got a, a $2 uh, infringement against you, you need to realize that God's forgiven you $2 million. If somebody's done $2 million worth of damage against you, realize that God's forgiven you $2 trillion. It's when we realize that God gave us forgiveness that we can extend that forgiveness to other people. That's the secret Christianity offers. We forgive not because people deserve it. It wasn't really that bad or we need to minimize it. We forgive it because God's forgiven us that and so much more. So forgive your Judah, one, because you want it. You want to be free. Number two, because God gave in three, because they need it. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, last week who's taken over as a volunteer of a huge nonprofit down in uh, the south. And it's a system that has like 100 plus employees and it's got like 20 years of bad decision making, nobody having the guts to kind of fix some broken things. And so he and his volunteer team have been making decisions to right the ship. And with that, it's just turmoil has unleashed. And he's been accused of things and malice and gossip and all these horrible things online and spreading everywhere and he's taking the brunt of it. He's like, Chad, what do I do? And I said, well, when I've been through circumstances like this, here's what the Bible says. When people revile you, do not revile in return, but instead entrust the situation to him who judges righteously. And specifically, that's what Jesus did. When he was being reviled on the cross, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted the circumstance with the Romans to God who judges righteously. And he said, well, that's what I need because my heart is hurting. And these are people I love and care about and have known for 20 plus years and yet they are accusing me of things that I don't deserve and aren't true. And my heart is just aching. So I've been calling him every couple, a couple days just to encourage him and to pray for him and to help him. That he could let God's grace help him forgive people because he wants it. Remember that God's forgiven him of that and more so he's got the power to do it. And three, that these people need it. Jesus' words on the cross were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Many of the people who heard us did know what they were doing, but at some level they didn't know just how vicious, just how long-lasting it would be. So I want to pray for you, whoever your Judah is, that God would help you get to the heart of the matter of finding freedom and forgiveness this morning. So if, you want to, if, you want, if it helps to close your eyes and bow your head, that's great. If not, just talk to God and say, God, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to be free. I want to forgive. God, give me the power to do that. I believe Jesus died. I want to believe that he died enough to give me the power to forgive this. And help me to see my enemies as human beings who are equally flawed and need your forgiveness and my forgiveness too. I invite that forgiveness into my life. Heal my heart. And teach me the power of forgiveness in everyday life.